looking at an organism is like looking at evolution, right? It's, it's like looking back in time. You're, you're seeing things that worked and things that didn't work and what was passed down and seeing how these things evolve in real time and what they resist to and which drugs they inactivate. And it, it affects almost everything, every aspect of day-to-day life. What does it mean that the science of microbiology is perhaps suggesting that we live more like the Amish people or at least learn from their ways? How can our understanding of probiotics be applied to address ecological challenges like the colony collapse disorder of our honeybees? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is a listener-supported show, and I need your help to be able to continue doing this work. If it's become a regular part of your routine or if it's inspired you in any way and you're able to support Green Dreamer starting at just $1 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. And thank you so much if you're already a patron. It helps a lot, and I do really appreciate it. For now to our conversation with Raja Deer, a life sciences entrepreneur and the co-founder of Seed, which is a venture-backed microbiome company pioneering the application of bacteria for both human and planetary health. We did have his co-founder, Era Katz, on Green Dreamer a few months ago. I think it was back on episode 109. So if you haven't already, be sure to tune into that one after this one as well. But basically after that conversation, I felt like I still had so many burgeoning questions left. And with Raja being one of the most knowledgeable people out there about the research being done in microbiology, I thought it'd be amazing for us to dive deeper into this topic, learning from his complementing expertise. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I think I read the first microbiome paper that was ever published, or certainly one of the most influential ones, was back in 2006. And it was a paper that was authored by a group of scientists that were looking at the effect of transplanting the microbiome, which means taking the microbiome from one organism, putting it in another, and seeing what effects that had on the body. And at this time, the microbiome as a field, no one really thought that, you know, the bacteria in and on the body or where it's concentrated most is in the gut could really have, uh, you know, big effects on, on human biology. But what they found was that if you took obese mice and transplanted their bacteria into lean mice, they became obese and vice versa. Mm. And I always joke with people that if you want someone to pay attention, show that it makes them look younger, makes them less fat. And in some ways, it kind of was the shot heard around the world that catalyzed microbiome science, where people started saying, hey, you know, this isn't just uh, these organisms just aren't hanger-ons, but they really are part of this larger symbiotic multi-species organism, which is the human body. And so that was my first entry into the field. And, you know, over the next 10 years, I'd been following the literature. My career was in uh, technical development and scale up, particularly around academic patents and IP. And so one of the earliest patents that I had filed was on a way to increase the diversity of the microbiome and novel, novel stabilization methods to do so. And R and I really became connected around this idea originally as, as kind of R had shared before is, well, we know that when a child is born, 
early decisions in terms of the mode of delivery, the choice to use antibiotics or not, the choice to breastfeed or not, all these things can have profound lifelong effects on the infant. And I thought there was a really big opportunity to make impact by modulating the microbiome um, or considering the microbiome in, in ways that hadn't really been done before. And so we have a lot of research tracks even today at Seed that are looking at ways of introducing beneficial organisms, but also uh, prebiotic compounds or specific sugars from breast milk to babies to kind of set them up with that, with that microbiome for life. Mm. I'd love to start with the basics. So can you break down what exactly our microbiome is and what probiotics and prebiotics are? Yep. So the microbiome is the collection of organisms in and on the human body. It's mostly in the gut, as I alluded to before, but it's on every surface that you can imagine, external surface. So your skin, your mouth, uh, for women, it's in the vagina. Anywhere where there's an interaction with an external surface, you'll find it on your hair, on your scalp, I should say, and so forth. Probiotics are live organisms which have a health effect on the host when they're, when they're consumed. So any time that a bacteria or a live organism can have a health benefit, uh, that organism scientifically can be referred to as probiotic. Although the term is, is deeply abused and conflated to refer to any fermentation or fermented product or fermentative byproduct uh, is how it's used most often in kind of the common tongue. Prebiotics are compounds which bacteria use either to increase the beneficial abundance of good organisms, I'm using air quotes on good, or they're used by bacteria to produce compounds or metabolites that have a health benefit for humans as well. So there's two, thing, two ways that something could be prebiotic, but it's, it's most importantly, it's not a live organism, but what's called in science a substrate, or more commonly just a food source for microbial metabolism. Well, like you mentioned, the word probiotics, I feel like, has definitely been thrown around a lot and used on a lot of products when trying to sell those products. So what is it that led to this boom of probiotics in the entire wellness space? And how much of this is based on real science versus just used as a marketing buzzword? So I think that the field started at a time when, you know, there was a little bit of research on what lactic acid organisms had for on, on, on improving health and digest, particularly digestion. So for an example, people that are lactose intolerance usually can, t can have yogurt, and that's because the live organisms, they have eaten up and degraded all the lactose and converted it into something else, into lactic acid. Mm. So, you know, the field really started, I, I mean, I should say the field started once, once people uh, began making yogurt and fermented foods, and then they found, hey, well, there's all these starter cultures that it's probably more easy, it's easier, more convenient to just package those starter cultures up and give it to people and try to accomplish the same effect. Most notably was when we found that there's some organisms that are good for health that are not able, are not good at fermentation or are not good at food products is when I would say kind of more of the probiotic industry started where people started looking at combining a lot of organisms. They started looking at novel organisms but a lot of that research is actually in the hands of very few people. Most of what you see today on the market is a handful of very limited species that are just leftover relics from the yogurt and dairy industry that are, have been turned into products. So there's a lot of misunderstanding going on, you feel like, among consumers? 
I think that consumers, unfortunately, have been messaged and marketed to where the evangelism is greater than the evidence. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, the hype or the marketing is, is far ahead of, of the health benefit that's been established. And so I think that there is, a, there is value in live organisms and their, and their benefit. And certainly I can attest to the fact that even in you know, our research track, we've seen products which have, have come out of you know, large-scale, double-blind, randomized controlled trials that have pretty interesting effects and, and show benefit in the body. But that's the uh, exception, not really the rule. And so the most important thing for people to take away from this is to ask for evidence, strain-specific evidence of trials where these strains or these species were used to actually show that they have an effect rather than just being uh, cheap and easy to ferment. To my knowledge, one of the other misconceptions is that there's not one type of healthy microbiome and that different people can both have healthy microbiomes that look completely different and have a different makeup of microorganisms but still be considered healthy. Is this true? And if so, can you expand upon this for us? Yep, that is true. So in 2008, the White House set up the Human Microbiome Project uh, to try to answer a very simple question, which is what is a healthy microbiome? And from that research, they found that there's a high level of variance, variability between people that are all considered healthy. And so from this point, the discussion really changed uh, to say, well, maybe we shouldn't just be looking at which organisms are present, but what they're actually doing. Mm. So scientifically, the phenomenon that you're describing is called functional redundancy. It just means that different bugs or different organisms can perform the same function. But, you know, what is getting what got, got lost in that the translation of that, that still hasn't fully made it to customers right now, which still think that there's a good microbiome and a bad one. And while there are signatures that are associated with a healthy and unhealthy microbiome, it's oversimplification to say that it's based on which organisms are present alone. What this kind of reminds me of is how, you know, we can think of a rainforest, like a rainforest in Asia and a rainforest in South America can both have, they both evolved in their own ways to have a different biodiversity of life within them, but they can both be thriving in their own ways. Yeah. So we use ecological metaphors a lot as well. I think it's a, it's a really good way for people to make, make sense of the whole thing. Yeah. And on a similar train of thought, do we know if people whose ancestors evolved in different bioregions around the world also have a different makeup of microorganisms on their body? And is this what primarily has driven this difference between people? The the first part of your question is yes. Dramatically, there's people that are indigenous cultures and that have about, when you look at all the sequences that have come from indigenous cultures, you find thousands of species that we can't really find in the Western gut anymore. Um, I want to be careful and put an asterisk by that by saying just because it existed before doesn't necessarily mean that it's better or just because it's more diverse doesn't always mean that it's better. So there's there's a lot of things that are found in the Amazonian gut that I wouldn't really want (laughs) in my gut, in my gut, just because I know that they're probably, you know, like things like helminths and worms. And there's, there's just a bunch of stuff that were from those environments that have found homes in the human gut, but to our knowledge, don't serve really radical roles or functions. So I think that the answer is there's a happy medium is that you evolve or you get the microbiome that's a crosstalk uh, between your environment and your body. And so we know that, for example, there's a distinct microbiome that the Amish people have, and that's because they live in close proximity to farm animals. They 
are out, they work a lot with their hands, they don't have a lot of automation and modern sanitary hygiene practices, um, but yet they still live in a very agrarian lifestyle with diverse exposure to a lot of microorganisms, which results in a distinct microbial signature. Mm. And so, you know, we do see these differences between people, but it's too, it's not really clear to say whether, you know, that that gives somebody an advantage or if one's a more privileged microbiome than the other. I think that what we do know is that as people move into built environments, they remove themselves from microbial exposure through animals and nature and, and their diets progressively become more simplified and have higher composition of processed foods, that there is a loss of microbial diversity, which is very hard to gain back. Mm. And that's what, the, that's what the science is today. And what do we know about the impact that globalization may have played on our microbial world? Yeah, that's a good question. So I can say very probably the, there was actually a study that was done on this, and I can send you the link to put in the show notes yeah. on people that are first generation immigrants that move to a new place. Their microbiome begins to resemble the microbiome of the place they moved to in a very short period of time in less than one generation. So we know that this is it's highly responsive to the environment that you're in, even though some of these organisms you may have acquired from mom at a very young age. Hmm. When we talk about any sort of supplements, first of all, how the supplements are made, you know, whether that's backed by specific research is really important, but whether or not people even need to take supplements at all depends on their lifestyle and health condition. Based on my understanding, there was a meta-analysis showing that taking general supplements for an otherwise healthy individual who eats a balanced diet doesn't really have much of an impact. But we do know that the average nutrient density within our whole foods is on the decline because of our degrading soil health, which may lead to more people needing to take supplements depending on how well their bodies absorb nutrients and also how their foods were grown. But in the case of probiotics, you touched on this earlier with the Amish people, but, but what do we know about the people who do have thriving and really healthy microbiomes today? And what are the reasons why others may not have as healthy of a microbiome and therefore may need the aid of research-backed probiotics? So the first is that we're pretty surprised to find the number of people that are affected by some sort of digestive or GI condition. I think it's about, you know, 35 to 40% of Americans have IBS. 60, by some indications, 60 million or so people have chronic constipation. And then in some reports, they say that 70 plus percent of people report that they could have one, one area of their digestion that if they could improve, they would. Mm-hmm. And so th- there's a, three different ways of looking at kind of the amount, number of people that are affected. But needless to say, I think that digestion and, you know, it's, it's such a it's it's affects quality of life so much that it's something that most people are very sensitive to. And so probably the first people that respond the most positively or that would be the recommendation would be to integrate some uh, thing like a evidence or research-based probiotic strain or combination of strains into your life would be um, for the improvement of digestive function. And so just for the product that we've built, there's our two core strains came from a 300-person randomized double-blind controlled trial that looked at five different markers of GI health, namely uh, bloating, flatulence, intestinal transit time, stool hydration, and ease of expulsion. And so these are kind of your core markers that just from a functional perspective really affect quality of life. And oftentimes people have reported as one of the most visceral changes that they've experienced since 
since start since making the lifestyle change or since starting the probiotic. But in terms of other areas, you know, it's it's really a question of orientation. And so, uh, in terms of what one needs to survive, really, you need a. I mean, it's most simplest form. You need water and a carbon source. But in terms of what how you think about the health of an organism, you know, something that we've always said is for the longest time, the only levers that one had to positively impact health was diet and nutrition, lifestyle, uh, like exercise factors, the cessation of bad habits like smoking and like surgery and drugs in extreme, extreme cases. But what we think is what we think is really interesting is that now the research is there and it's again every year the the amount of research virtually doubles in this field of bacteria really we can start thinking about bacteria as a new lever of fixing diseases and conditions and we have several research tracks in our company that are going through FDA approval for to make treatment claims for 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 real conditions where uh, bacteria could become the primary standard of care but also that you can augment day-to-day life and impact health and nutrition in ways that haven't really been able to be done before. So I'll give you a good example. We know that there's a number of things in day-to-day life that cause temporary dis- temporary or longer uh, disintegrity of the gut barrier. So this is when the proteins that are in between your gut cells loosen up and they allow a lot of compounds into your bloodstream, which in some people presents themselves as an autoimmune condition and other people it presents itself as a risk factor for uh, an inflammatory response. And, and there's even new emerging research that says that when these microbial metabolites sneak in or enter into the body, it can even be implicated in Parkinson's neurodegenerative diseases. Now, I want to caution and say we're nowhere near a treatment for it, but I'm saying that right now there's a lot of evidence to suggest that when barriers break down is when the cascade of a lot of health effects start to begin in people. And so now we know that bacteria, for example, are really potent at what is called upregulating these tight junction proteins and just serving as a protective uh, layer from daily consumption through oral ingestion to tighten up that gut barrier is one example. Another example is you know, most people think that you have to eat meat to get vitamin B12, or you have to take a supplement or eat insane amounts of cruciferous vegetables to get B vitamins. But most people don't really know that bacteria are some of the only real uh, sources of B vitamins that are produced in nature. And oftentimes the bacteria in your gut have the metabolism to produce a lot of these organisms and their special receptor sites in the human body to absorb and, and, and allow those to enter into systemic circulation. So things like folate, things like vitamin B12, Vitamin B3, these are all microbial metabolites, which can have really interesting health effects. And, you know, even one of the theories is that when kids are very young, they have these bacteria that they outsource a lot of these core vitamin production, B vitamin production responsibilities to. And so that's that's two examples about how someone who's otherwise healthy could also benefit from day-to-day consumption of bacteria. Super interesting. So do you think one of the primary reasons that our Overall, microbiome health have been compromised is due to our disconnection from nature? I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a disconnection with nature and moving to built environments. I think it's the consumption of processed foods and moving away from food diversity. So there was a study that was done uh, that wrapped up last year, and it looked at over 10,000 different people, sequenced the guts of 10,000 people, took over 15,000 samples, and linked their microbial diversity to their dietary habits. And they found that the number one predictor of a diverse microbiome was the consumption of over 30 different fruits and vegetables in any given week. And the best predictor of low microbial diversity was the consumption of under 10. And so 
it really that goes to show you that sometimes you could be eating things that on paper are very healthy, but if you don't have a diverse input of various plants and stalks and don't throw the roots out and eat the, eat the, the roughage and, uh, and vary it up and make sure you get you know, exposure of different, food, di- different foods within the same food group. And I think that simple stuff like that is, actually goes, goes a really, really long way. Of course, antibiotic use is another big contributor to the decline of microbial diversity, which is, uh, has been an incredible tool in medicine over the last 50 or so years, but has also probably been responsible for a lot of uh, loss, particularly when taken in early life and those communities aren't resilient enough to rebound. And then the fourth is actually a really interesting experiment that I like to talk about where they took these animal models and they gave animals and they, in this model, they gave three successive generations low fiber diets. So these mice were given low fiber diets for the mice, their children, and then their grandchildren. And they found that after three generations of a low fiber diet, the diversity was that you had basically caused an extinction and that by returning them to a high fiber diet, you couldn't bring back the organisms that were lost. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a combination of things, but I think that those are some of the big points. So given how important of a role our microbiome play in our health, they do make up 50% of our bodies, as we learned from ARA on episode 109. But given how vital they are for our well-being, how much emphasis does current Western medicine place on this? Well, I think that Western medicine is, is best targeted to respond to conditions once symptoms have been presented. I think the equal criticism of non-Western medicine, if that's, if that's an appropriate name for it, is that there's a lot of wishful thinking. And in some instances, it's a better to try than uh, not try approach, which informs the decision making rather than really putting things through the rigor of, you know, controlled trials. And oftentimes, sometimes, you know, it's really challenging to do so. I mean, how can you to design a trial appropriately to see what one change in diet does compared to another? I mean, you have to track people and control for everything over like 30, 40 years. And it's really hard to to design and orchestrate those types of trials. So it's not a criticism, but it's just more of a reflection on the challenge of research in preventive medicine, uh, of appropriately designed trials in preventive medicine. But I think that, you know, what's, what's happening now is that we're seeing that the microbiome and bacteria is starting to play a central role in, in, in everything, including traditional Western medicine. And so an example is one of the most recent waves of research is showing how changing the microbiome can increase your response to chemotherapy. And so, you know, some people that respond to these checkpoint inhibitor chemotherapy treatments are, are people that have a specific microbiome, whereas if you have a different microbiome, then you, you can cluster and have a high risk of being what's called a non-responder. And so I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of the role that this plays in everything from uh, preventive health all the way to extreme measures of cancer treatment. Mm. And well, I feel like in the field of medicine right now, the approach that has been taken is more so about looking at things in isolation. So perhaps an organ or one part of the body or uh, focused on the symptoms. Increasingly, the focus is becoming more about looking at the whole person. But do you think that our understanding of our microbiome will further extend that so that doctors maybe will start to even become voices for our environmental health because even at a biological level, we're learning that we're connected to the earth through our microbiology and all the microbial life around us and in the soils also directly impact our health. Yeah, I think we're already starting to see it. So I think it's starting to become very challenging to 
to look at th- at conditions and isolation anymore, particularly as data starts getting generated on the on the relationship between risk factors, lifestyle factors, dietary factors, genetic factors, microbiome factors, and really how all these things converge um, to make up the health of a being. And so I think that you know nowadays in clinical trials people do look for everything. You, you, I'm starting to see that microbiome is getting sequenced going to a clinical trial. Now it's commonplace to screen people's genetics and look at their genetic risk factors in enrollment of a trial, right? So the, the collapse of the single, you know, this doctor looks at you from your neck up and this doctor looks at you from this part to, I, I think that all that's changing. I don't think that the system is going to change that quickly, but I think that you're starting to find the breakout people in each field really have this type of interdisciplinary approach. And a comment I'd make on that is it's why I love the the microbiome field so much because it didn't really exist until very recently. And it's not just microbiologists that are in it. So what happened was the best and brightest in all these different fields all collided to come study study this field. So you have gastroenterologists, you have neurologists, you have immunologists, all looking at this stuff from different angles. And so I think it's created a, a really interesting environment where there's an exchange of ideas, there's new research that's being presented, there's new hypotheses that are being put forth, and there's a lot of breakthrough research that's, that's coming out as a result of that. And so I think that in many ways, we're starting to see that whether the organism is uh, an animal, whether the organism is a human, whether the organism is the earth, the underlying principles about ecosystems theory and systems biology are starting to reveal themselves across all these different domains. That's really exciting. It sounds like our understanding of the microbiome is really bringing everybody together because it affects everything. It really does. I mean, microbes are virtually everywhere. We've, we've found that they're locked in, you know, miles and miles below million-year-old frozen tundra. It's really hard to find any place on Earth other than very, very expensive chambers and research labs that are designed to be germ-free where there are no organisms. And so I think that, you know, one of the things we're coming to realize is that looking at an organism is like looking at evolution, right? It's, it's like looking back in time. You're, you're seeing things that worked and things that didn't work and what was passed down and seeing how these things evolve in real time and what they resist to and which drugs they inactivate. And it, it affects almost everything, every aspect of day-to-day life. One of the really cool things that I think your team has worked on is your probiotics for honeybees. Can you shed some light on why you decided to work on this and why there was a need? If people have been following the honeybee story, they know that there's this phenomenon going on called colony collapse disorder, where honeybee colonies are dying uh, in vast quantities without any known, real known cause. The two, three leading theories that have been put forth is that the honeybee habitat loss, pathogens, and pesticide exposure. And so what we, our chief scientist is a, he's, he's a very impressive microbiologist by training, but he's a good example of a scientist that works on human health as well as ecological health because he sees them as the same thing. And so one of the things that was put out by Seed Labs under his lab is sequencing the gut of the honeybee microbiome to see how bacteria can actually detoxify pesticides that are commonly used on crops. And the the data was pretty impressive so far. So we found that these neonicotinoid pesticides can be virtually, virtually you can, what's called rescue, um, the neurological effects that happen on the honeybee 
uh, through introduction, reintroduction of these organisms into the honeybee gut. And second, what's more interesting is that what happens in the first three days of life for a honeybee is oftentimes a dormant spore by the name of Penibacillus larvae takes over and causes a disease called Falbrew disease. And when it happens, it's a really serious condition and, and bee farmers or uh, farmers that have bees on their property when this happens are supposed to, it, it's so it's it's so aggressive that they're recommended to just go torch the whole hive wow. so that it doesn't spread from one hive to another. And we found a pretty impressive data, and this is going out for publication right now, that actually the honeybee probiotic can prevent and and, and rescue uh, these young honeybee populations better than the than even the use of antibiotics. And so I think that you know this idea that bacteria can be not just knocking out organisms, but putting back beneficial ones can be a, a combination approach. To, to thinking about uh, ecological and particularly the health of these keystone species. Yeah, I feel like within the world of agriculture, it's been all about killing off the bad. But with our understanding of the microbial world, there's a huge potential for us to be focusing on what we can do to support the good instead, rather than you know using pesticides, fungicides, insecticides, and all of that. And you know, it, a lot of this stuff is just modeled off of nature to be honest this isn't this isn't a human invention so i mean if you've heard of this concept called nitrogen fixing it's really this idea that some plants that live in there's not enough nitrogen in the soil they have microbes that are attached nearby their root system and they just capture nitrogen from the air and then convert it and provide it as a direct nitrogen uptake source for the plant itself and these plants wouldn't be able to exist without their microbial uh, or their root microbiome or their plant microbiome so to speak so this idea that there's symbiosis in some instances, it's more obvious, like in nitrogen fixing, but we're just starting to scratch the surface of the intimate connection between all organisms and their microbial counterparts. I heard a saying that was like, we don't need new research and development for new technology because the best technology out there is nature, which has been doing R&D for like millions of years. So we have a lot still that we can learn from how the natural world functions. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of work going through it and mining it for, you know, making making sense of it all. But our our best drugs are natural have been natural products, right? So or uh, or very close derivatives of. So I think there's some wisdom to that. Yeah, well, at this point, I feel like big pharma at the moment with their influence in medicine is keeping the field of medicine really focused on medication rather than supporting people's health. And similarly, in agriculture, the chemical industry's power is also keeping agriculture hooked on the chemicals rather than looking at how to best support the health of the farmland and our soil microbiology. So with this in mind, what do you think we need most at a societal level to be able to support healthy populations of people and microbial life in our ecosystems? uh education <laughs> I, yeah I, it's 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 tough because in some ways i mean we we had it right for so long i think we need to a lot of our issues started when private sector private interest was built off of this co uh, approach that things are that that nature is a resource or that nature is a, com a commodity and I think, I mean, a lot of people, I'm, this certainly isn't a new idea, but I think a lot of people point to industrialization as the beginning of the, the end. And again, it works on a really small level when 
you have a sustainable population burden on the earth and everything is uh, kind of, there's kind of checks and balances, but I think it's a combination of this kind of not recognizing the cost in bio microbiology, you call it the fitness cost, which is just, even if it's seemingly existing and being healthy, there's always a cost, right? And so unfortunately right now, the fitness cost is being experienced by the environment and by the planet. So it's, it, it just, it's unsustainable. I mean, we, we don't have the biodiversity we have anymore. We have a tripled or quadrupled in our population. And so the demands of even just feeding those people, let alone caring for their desire to live to 100 years old is going to be, you know, pretty onerous. And so the, the answer might not be something that everybody likes, but the answer is that when, when you distort nature, you have to expect to experience a, a contraction, right? Because at the end of the day, most systems end up finding homeostasis in some way or another. And so it's the same thing I say with global warming, which is the earth's going to be just fine. It's people that are probably not going to be here as be here as long as they think. So, you know, the, the, the planet's going to be just fine. We shouldn't do this out of sympathy for the planet. We should do this for wildlife, yes, but the planet's going to be just fine. We should probably just also do it for preservation of our own species. Mm. And to close off, what do you think we as individuals can take action on to support our own civilization and our wildlife and also our microbiome? Well, I think that the first thing is that's a little counterintuitive is that living in cities is actually a good thing. The, the one thing that's been helpful that's a little counterintuitive is urbanization has concentrated humans and actually kept their impact in moving into more and more wildlife and agrarian uh, societies has, has attenuated it. So I think that if we do continue to have the population burden that we have, that living in efficient places instead of uh, resource rich or resource in intensive or inefficient places is probably a good thing. I think that the number one thing that you could probably do that's more than the, the, the two best things you can do for the environment to our knowledge today is not operate a motor vehicle ex by yourself. Uh, so decrease your number of hours driving a vehicle and shift to a non-meat meat heavy diet um, because the role that animal agriculture plays on resource allocation and environmental effects is is as much if not more than all these small changes like uh, recycling an extra plastic bag per week so those are probably i think as of the last uh, rankings report the two highest things that you could do of course you should try to be conscientious i think that most people don't realize that ocean oceans and ocean and marine life is dramatically on the decline some reports say that there's not going to be fish in the ocean in the next 50 years i think that what we do know is that marine ecosystems they they rebound in, and all ecosystems for that matter rebound in a very short period of time if they're given the time and the space to do so and so while not a direct action item i would just encourage people to be educated on moments in in conservationism um, and environmentalism where you hit a, a point of, of of no return um, and find those projects and get involved in them Hey, just wanted to let you know quickly that I've started to share some key talking points and suggested action steps to use from each episode on Patreon. So if you're able to support the show starting at $1 per month, you'll get access to this as well as additional extended content sometimes from these conversations there as well. Green Dreamer is an independent new media platform, so every bit of your support really helps me to keep putting these episodes out as free public education. And I really am dedicated to continue doing this. So 
Thank you so much for your support. To become a patron and maybe join our Green Dreamer network as well, just head to greendreamer.com support for more information. For now to our final five, let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow? I don't know. I like uh, I like the wildlife accounts. So there's one African animals is a really good one that I like because it showcases animals that most people don't get to see on a day to day basis. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? The earth is 4.3 billion years old. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I hike every morning for four to five miles with my two dogs. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Elimination of meat. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment or for ourselves? <laughs> I think our generation is, is course correcting on a lot of mistakes and thinking that our, the previous generation had. So I, I do have hope that a lot of the things that are popular for our, our generation are environmentalism and uh, conservation and education are forms of social, social capital. And so I, I look forward to seeing how our generation can really be, I think, gentler stewards of the earth. Well, I did want to mention before we wrap up to our listener that Raja's team graciously offered to give you 20% off your first month of their symbiotic if you're interested in trying that out. So you can use the discount code GREENDREAMER and their website is very simple, seed.com. Raja, to close, can you tell us about what the symbiotic does uh, briefly and is there anywhere else that we can find you and your work online? Yep. So the symbiotic is the very first product that we've built as a company and it's a combination of depending on the product, 24 or 20 different strains of bacteria. And all of them have a a strong evidence base for inclusion or use in human health for a variety of different indications in the body. And so while improvements in maintenance of digestion is one really important one, things like folate production that I mentioned earlier on or impacting the immune system to dampen the inflammatory response in skin or uh, cardiovascular benefits you know, there's seven core organ systems that have research base for these strains. And so what we think about it is really looking at the application of bacteria, not for any specific condition, but um, as a means to improve overall health. And so that was kind of the development of it. And I, 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 the credit really goes to our chief scientist, Dr. Gregor Reed, uh, who was the uh, chair of the United Nations and World Health Organization panel that authored the scientific definition of probiotics in 2001. And so if, if you're interested or curious about microbiome or biology, seed.com is a great resource. The, the Instagram account for the company is just at seed. Um, and it's full of really interesting information. And we try to trick people into learning biology in ways that's fun and fun <laughs> and engage, engaging. So that's, that's a really good place too. Yes. My personal my personal accounts at Wild Raja, and it's you'll see mostly pictures under the microscope and under the ocean and deep in space. Um, with the thesis being that whether you zoom in or zoom out, the underlying principles of biology are conserved, and that's pretty much it. Beautiful. Yeah, the Seed Instagram account is one of my favorites ever. So I hope that our listener will go and follow your account. And to close off, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Live like the Amish. 
Green Dreamer, thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. You can subscribe to Green Dreamer on YouTube by going to greendreamer.com slash YouTube. And again, to access my weekly takeaways and suggested action steps from each episode, you can join me on Patreon at greendreamer.com slash support. Thank you so much for being here and for your continued support. Knowing you're here really keeps me going. I just wanted to extend my sincere gratitude to you for your huge heart and dedication to continuing this ever-learning journey with me. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.